Welcome to Killer Women with your host, best-selling author, Danielle Girard. The Killer Women Vodcast is pleased to be a part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. To learn more about Danielle and her books, visit her at www.daniellegirard.com and to access all of our vodcasts, go to youtube.com forward slash authors on the air. And now, Danielle's next killer woman. Hello, and welcome to the Killer Women podcast, a proud member of the Authors on the Air Global Network with over 4 million listeners. I'm your host, suspense author Danielle Girard, and my guest today is Ashley Winstead. Ashley is the author of In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife, Fool Me Once, and The Last Housewife. She's a former academic turned novelist with a PhD in English literature. Ashley lives in Houston with her husband, two cats, and beloved wine fridge. Welcome, Ashley. Hi, thank you so much, Danielle. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, I'm so happy to have you. And I was just showing you before we started recording what I have done to my lab. I have all these moments in this book that I just fell in love with. Um, Ashley, you are brilliant. Um, this book is so full of true woman moments. Um, and true man, I mean, I, you know, we, I love men. I always have to sort of say that because I, I feel like my, <laughs> my podcast is really about women. I'm a big, I'm a fan of men as well, but this is, uh, we are talking about women today and there's so many rich insights and truths here. So before I start to, you know, go on and on and on about how much I love this book, why don't you tell um, our listeners a little bit about The Last Housewife? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so in a nutshell, The Last Housewife is about a woman who goes undercover in a patriarchal sex cult to find out the truth about um, what happened to her former best friend whose body was found on their old college campus. Um, so that that's my little like tiny yep. elevator pitch. Totally. Um, because I normally talk a lot about the plot of my book and I'm starting to learn, you know, um, that maybe just a tiny teaser is. Well, better. that's a good, that's a really good teaser. <laughs> and I'm glad you talk about the sex cult because, you know, I want it, it's something obviously we want to explore in this conversation. It's so interesting. Yeah. But um, before we do that, I also, of course, read and I'm a big fan of this book. So here's the dual. Oh um, and I haven't read the third book, but I'm sure I'll get to it. But this, these are your thrillers. And um, yeah. I love this one. Both of these books um, center around or start with sort of the core of these of women in college. And yeah. I and I sort of was curious about that because, you know, is that a, you know, what sort of what's the draw of that of that time in women's lives for you? Because it, it obviously yeah. has appeal. Yeah, um, I love that question. That's actually a question my agent asks me a lot because I send her a lot of ideas and so many of them, even beyond these two books, have college um, in them. And she's actually put me on a little bit of a college ban um, in terms of writing future books. But so I think a little bit of it is just my life. Like I spent 10 years on college camp on college campuses between my undergrad and my PhD. So that is a third of my life that is just like in that environment. I think it's, you know, it was also 18 through 30. So it was like where I grew up essentially. Um, and so, so many of my, um, my own personal experiences with like coming to understand my identity, being exposed to people who, um, you know, just outside of like my, my 
all the places that I grew up and being exposed to like class difference and so on um, center around college. But I think just universally for people who, especially for women who go to college, um, you know, this is a time where it's like the world cracks open, anything is possible. Um, and it's supposed to be this great leveling field, right? You know, like everyone has their shot on a college campus, everyone, no matter who their dad is, or, you know, their mom is, uh, how much money they have, you're all in the dorms, like it's all, it's supposed to be this level thing, but of course, class and race and, and, you know, popularity and all these hierarchical systems play a role. And I think that's what like dark academia thrillers are so good at showing. Um, so it's yeah. like takes that campus novel that we all love from like childhood right. boarding school stories and then just like gives it a dark spin. So I just, yeah, I find a lot of inspiration from that setting, I guess. And it's the first time that we're truly independent. So yeah. a lot of things can go really wrong, right? We, we're, yeah. plus you introduce, you know, alcohol and um, uh, this, you know, along with the freedom and the, and, you know, and then you put, you know, fraternity boys and sorority, whatever on campus. And yeah. there's a lot of, there's a, a lot of danger sort of, you know, in, on a college campus. And as we've seen and read about, obviously there's a lot of things that go, that do go wrong. So I, I can see the appeal and I'm sorry that your agent put a ban on it. Cause I, I kind of think it's, um, it's a great launching pad for, for, and, and in these books, it's, we don't spend, I mean, in, in, in my dreams, I hold a knife. She goes back, right. It's a reunion. Um, mm -hmm. but it's not, we don't spend that much time really in the books, um, as college students. So I think it's right. sort of, like you said, it's sort of your, it's your, it's the, the sort of foundation that these, these characters spring from. Um, yeah. and in this book also you use, um, the myth of Scheherazade, um, yeah. And I'm I, I'm hoping you will describe that a little bit, you know, for for readers because I thought that was a really interesting sort of way of, you know, set, sectioning off the book. Yeah, I'm I'm so glad to talk about that because Shahrazad and One Thousand and One Nights has like really captured my imagination for a long time. Um, it is so Shahrazad for reader for listeners who aren't um, familiar is the frame narrator of 1001 Nights. And I, I think people will probably maybe be a little more familiar with like Aladdin and the adventures of Sinbad and all of these stories that come out of 1001 Nights. But um, essentially um, when you in 1001 Nights and I was so inspired by this structure and tried to like emulate it a little bit, not to the level that, that 1001 Nights is able to do, but it's a collection of stories that was first told orally um, and historians trace it back to India and Persia, Iran, um, for like the origin of a lot of these myths. But essentially a king, the story goes that a king, um, his wife cheated on him and in his absolute rage and anger, he beheads her and then begins to marry the women of his kingdom one by one. He beds them and then by dawn beheads them. And so he's going through and systematically marrying and murdering the women in his kingdom until a woman Scheherazade, the daughter of the executioner, steps up and says, father, let me marry the king. Um, and this is, this is such a bold move. She, she volunteers, she's a little protected, but she volunteers to go and she has a plan. Um, and that's part of the myth of Scheherazade is that she's this very clever woman. Um, and so she marries the king and in bed that night, 
um, she, what she does is she begins to tell him a story and the story is so captivating and she leaves him on a hook that he decides not to kill her that night so he can hear the rest of the story, right? And so it's supposed to be at the, about the power of, of stories. And so Scheherazade is able to pull this off for a thousand nights in a row, story after story. And when you read 1001 Nights, it's just a feat of, of storytelling, of structure, because it's all of these embedded stories. Like you'll, you'll be starting reading one story and Scheherazade will say something to the king like, oh, and then, um, so-and-so and his, his, you know, cow, magical cow passed by. You don't want to hear about that. And the king will say like, actually, yes, I do. So all of a sudden you leave your current story and you're in the next one. It's just all these layers. Um, and on the, the, like after the thousandth night, the king has fallen in love with her. So the story goes and he weds her, you know, he, he, makes her like his his love marriage and decides not to kill her so that's her prize for outwinning the king this murderer <laughs> is that she gets to like live with him um and i just found the idea of telling stories to save your life mm -hmm. um so powerful and so relevant obviously to like the identity construction we all do every single day especially as women that idea of like frantic storytelling to appeal to men um, and I've always been so dissatisfied by Scheherazade's prize. And I- She should I be wanted, free. Right, Everybody I wanted be, to imagine like- Free all women. Else. Yes. yes, yeah. So that's where that comes from. It's fabulous. And I think, I think as writers, especially, right, we, we, we are saving our lives. We hope yes. we're saving our readers as well by telling stories of women's truths which I think is a really powerful thing. And I, when somebody has reaches out to me and I'm, I know this has happened to you as well and says, your story resonated with me in such a strong way. And I thank you so much for writing it. That is, that is the most powerful yeah. response, right? It kind of knocks me on my ass for like, I, I can't really do anything for a solid hour or so. Just right. it feels sacred. It is sacred. And I think especially... And I just have so many things to unpack about this. So I don't want to get ahead of myself. I'm going to back up. I'm going to do this. Wait, the story, that story comes later. So the other thing is, I think it's interesting. Like, does this story also somehow, I mean, it symbolizes, um, you know, somewhat the plight of women, right? Yeah. The general plight of women that we need the only, if we sort of tame the beasts of our world by, you know, telling stories. And so how constrained does that, you know, does that make us? Oh, oh absolutely. It's like, it's a performance. Life is a performance. And that, that's something that I was trying to um, get at with Shay. And that's something that Shay, very, my main character in The Last Housewife, and something that she very much feels. In fact, her life has been such a performance for so long in so many different ways that she has lost the ability to tell what's real in her own mind Mm -hmm. of her own desires, of her own feelings, and what um, feels feels like it's hers, but has really emerged because she understands it needs to be there or people are expecting it. Um, right. And so she's, her mission, she has a lot of missions in this book, but one of them is like figuring out who she is, untangling the real from the performance, um, and then trying to decide what to do when she finally confronts who she really is. Right which is a very 
exciting scene, shall we say. Um, (laughs) But also another um, main, you know, really important character in this book actually, and and really adds sort of a depth and a reflection uh, to Shay's character is Jamie, who is um, somebody, a a man that she grew up, you know, that she grew up with, who's known her her whole life. And of course his vision of her is from when they were kids. So he doesn't, there's a lot of layers of her that that are different and they were disconnected for, you know, quite a, while, a long time. I don't know how many years you probably can. Around eight years. Yeah, around eight years. Longer than that, yeah. Okay, so they were disconnected and and it is the death of this friend, as you mentioned, who's left on the college campus that makes sort of the, the, where they reconnect because she's listening to his, he's a he's a true crime podcaster. And that, yeah. so the, in the book is, is, some of the book is done in transcript form, which is so interesting because, you know, Jamie has a personal attachment to Shay, of course, because they've yeah. grown up to each other and they, you know, really care about each other. Um, so he's, you know, he's, here he is trying to be the you know, the observer, the distance observer at, at, in his podcast. And of course, that's very, very challenging for him. And he's a lovely, a lovely character. So um, one of the things that I have all these, this is what I've done here is I have all these I notes I've made. But um, one of the things I thought was really interesting and I sort of want to crack into is the idea of agency. Yeah. Um, so in the interviews, you know, J- you know, Jamie asks Shay why she found the dominance aspect of the of this of the relationship with Don, who is the sort of leader of this sex cult, um, yeah. so appealing. And you know, and then basically he corrects himself and he says, you know, you were victims. And Shay's response, which I of course wrote down here, is I don't know about that word. What did you call yourself when you'd taken an active role in your own suffering, when your hands weren't clean, when there wasn't a single part of you that was, especially not your mind, all. Wait, there wasn't a single part of you that was, especially not your mind. All the, I've missed a word here. All those deep, dark corners. So, yeah. and I wrote down the page so I can figure out what I missed. But basically what she's saying is she's partially to blame here, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, that's what she's saying. Oh, it's me just reading it wrong. It's when your hands weren't clean, when there wasn't a single part of you that was, especially not your mind, all those deep, dark corners. First of all, besides all my butchering and I apologize, it's so beautiful, right? There isn't, she doesn't feel clean. So in today's day and age, right? When we have women, you know, victims of, of you know, a sexual assault who have to basically testify about their own experiences in, you know, in some ways they're, they're more on the stand than the men who they are, you know, accusing. Absolutely. Now what is, so what is, you know, agency? What, you know, what, where do we come out on this? I am not going to have a satisfying answer for you because, because it is something that it is a question that like plagues me and that I've devoted so much time as both like an academic before I began creative writing um, and as a, as a novelist thinking through agency. I mean, I will not, I promise not to like geek out or go down this, um, this rabbit hole too much, but when I was getting my PhD, I participated in a philosophy seminar with all these amazing philosophers and um, neuroscientists and thinking about the question of agency and um, the human self and whether we could ever, ever pinpoint through, through science or philosophy or any means of like human discovery, if we could ever even pinpoint where agency was happening. Is it in your interior monologue? Not everyone has that. Is it like a, a thing that happens in the, in the synapses in your, in your brain? 
Well, it's really hard because sometimes you start to do things because your gut, the bio, you know, the biochemicals in your gut tell you to. Anyway, so like from, I've been so fascinated in this question, in this question of like, what is agency? Mm -hmm. um, and what Shay is doing in The Last Housewife is trying to understand there are parts of her, she's carrying so much guilt and she understands that she made choices um, in her past that brought her into the crosshairs. And not only that, but like once she was part of this sex cult, you know, in, in college, just to, that's not a spoiler, that's part of the back cover yeah. copy, but yeah. um, once she was part of this sex cult, she actively participated and actively felt desire to see people punished and to be rewarded. And she can't, if that, if those emotions weren't true, what is true? You know, right. then how can she know what she, what is, what is real desire versus not? Um, and so as she's telling her life story to Jamie and he's asking her these questions, she is used, they have a great relationship, but she's also using him yeah. to pressure test her own mind and, and her own story to figure out like he, she likes it when he asks her those accusatory questions because she accuses herself of things right. and you know this enables right. her to like answer those questions so i to your point about like women victims in in sexual assault and, and cases of sexual violence they're absolutely on the stand mm. um in ways maybe more powerfully than the men who are are accused of harming them um and there's the sense that you have to show that you are 100 percent a victim Right. That there's not one part of you that of your brain that started that night wanting something, right. you know, or that you, you, you are just like such a pure, clean right. victim. And I use those words with air quotes, pure and right. clean. And like, that doesn't exist. And of course that doesn't exist. That's not right. And that standard is absurd. And so Shay is trying to figure out, and it's almost like, this thing that you can't figure out. Shay's right. trying to figure out like, when did I start becoming complicit? When it, was it when I said yes to Dawn? Was it when I learned that I got power from men's attraction to me mm -hmm. that predates when I met Dawn? Mm -hmm. Is it when I was put in these victimized positions when I was a young girl? Like, when did it start? Right, um, right. And I, you know, and I think that the other way in which I love the relationship between she and Jamie is that she tells Jamie all these really, yeah. you know, they're truths, but of course she sees them as ugly and, and he's sort of startled by them as a way of sort of testing how much love do you have for me? Cause I'm going to, exactly. I will show you the ugliest parts. And I think there's a part of each of us that wants to do that, right? We want to be able to say to our partner, to our husband, you know, this is the ugly interior. This is the scary, dark corner. And if I show that to you and to our parents and to, you know, to our close friends, will you still love me yeah. if I show you that dark, dark stuff? Cause, and then for, and for a lot of people, it's too scary. We have to, you know, we have to keep that all inside, which really, you know, and I think women more than men, although men, I think also keep, they are not also good at expressing things. And so we keep it down and it doesn't really serve us, right? To hold mm -hmm. on to that. In fact, I think it probably does us, you know, a real, a real disservice. So yeah, they're, they're, <laughs> this is going to sound weird, but I actually look at the relationship between Jamie and Shay in this book as like one of the most romantic relationships I've, I've written 
this maybe sounds weird given the context of like the darkness of this book, but to me, exactly, you hit it like the nail on the head of the pure intimacy and vulnerability mm -hmm. of telling someone the worst things you've done right. and, and owning up to it and living it, you know, leaning into it. And that person saying like, I see why, and I right. understand, and I, I'm still oh. love, I yeah. still love you. <laughs> and he's a one, you know, I think there's, there was a risk in this book of sort of running down the track of like, all men are evil because, yeah. um, you know, Shay's in a marriage also when the book starts and, you know, um, although he's not, he's not a sex cult leader, but you know, <laughs> he has his own versions yeah. of sort of like control over her. And so Jamie represents this, you know, this idea that of course there are wonderful men in the world. And of course there are wonderful partnerships. And I agree. I think Jamie is, and he's not sort of one of the, he's not like a, you know, fluff, unrealistic male character. He reacts very strongly to what yeah. she's telling him. He's, you know, he's protective. He's, he's overwhelmed at times, um, yeah. but he comes through for her in a way that I absolutely agree. I think it is the most, um, I mean, it's a fabulous relationship and I imagine them, you know, working, through, I imagine them being together. So. Oops. Yeah, I, um, <laughs> I will, I was about to say something to you. <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay, wait, but we don't know. I'm not going to tell you. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I get interesting. I'll just say I get very interesting responses from readers about, about the two of them. So. Oh, you do. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. Lots of questions. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, I can imagine, I can imagine that. So you come, you actually were highlighting on something else that of course I, another um, note in my book, um, which is the, um, the idea that young women, and it reminded me of something because I'm, you know, 51. So it's been a long time since I was sort of a 14 year old or a 13 year old with sort of budding, um, so, you know, women, womanhood. And the idea that we feel there is a sense of feeling sort of preyed upon mm -hmm. um, when your body is changing at a time when your brain isn't really caught up to the idea of what that means. And Shay says, um, which is so beautiful, it felt like constant surveillance and it reshaped me. Going outside became an event. I developed this hum of apprehension and extra awareness, like a sixth sense I always carried. Men were watching around every corner. I could run into them at any moment. I'm not being dramatic. Anything could be an invitation, even accidentally meeting a man's eyes, which of course, I think every woman has felt, right? Yes. Where you actually, you know, smile at somebody because you're supposed to just smile at somebody and all of a sudden you sort of get the impression that you've, you've made an overture, which, you know, as a young woman or an older woman, you know, you, you haven't meant to make, but right. it's been interpreted that way. I, I have had the most incredible responses to this portion of the book I have mm -hmm. to say hearing from from women because it is I think so universal um, among women this experience of um, hitting puberty growing you know like developing breasts and, and developing your your woman's body and all of a sudden that like being plunged in cold water experience of people men especially yeah. are paying attention to you in ways that you immediately understand even if, if they aren't verbalized in cat calls or anything else that you immediately understand is different and um you know often predatory you know not always but i still you know if you're 13 and men are looking at you as a woman that's i think that is automatically predatory i will just right. put say that um, I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. So 13. Yeah. 
I think that, and this is something that I'm still like wrestling with myself just to be a little bit personal here, um, which I'm sure people just assume because I wrote this book, but um, you know, like untangling, it really messes with your head when you're a young woman, because you, when your body changes and men are paying attention to you, it's this moment of like a double-edged sword where you all of a sudden you're, you're terrified to be outside because you or you're going to attract so much attention, um, down walking down a street or, you know, in a restaurant, but at the same time that you're scared, you start to understand that you're commanding attention in a way power. that you never have before. Yes. And it's power and mm-hmm. it's so messed up, mm-hmm. but it is power. And for some women like Shay, and for me, when I was young, it was like the only power that was available, right? You know, there was no hard power, like wealth or, um, you know, like access to, to things. Um, because, you know, Shay comes from a working class family, um, as did I. And it, it, it's, it was like the first experience of power. And And I I think that's true for many, for, uh, you know, a lot of women, um, you know, in our families and in, in our communities where it really did shift things. And, and this brings us sort of the, to the idea of, and I think this ties into everything we've been talking about is sort of, um, you know, the choices that we make and where's our personal freedom and where does that begin sort of the, you know, the seed of our personal freedom. And it's, so, you know, she says, um, the idea is that, um, we make choices based on sort of what we've learned, right? And the quote that I, I've picked up um, is, what if you've come to believe the options available to you are limited? What if the way you think about the world works is wrong? What if life, life taught you something false or people lied to you, convinced you they knew you better, oh, they knew better than you did? Can you really choose freely if you're mistaught? And that is just, a that's a bomb in the way that we're all, I mean, it's just, it sort of has to make your brain just explode with like, okay, wait. And then, you know, is any of us really, do we really get to make free choices after the time when we're, you know, we know anything about our, so any self, any subconscious activity yeah. is happening. Any, any, yeah. One past that moment of self-consciousness where you first began to understand your like living in a world with other people and that your engagement with them is like gonna either give you things or withhold things from you, which is actually of such a young age. Such um, a young age, right. Um, and this is my like PhD nerd coming through because there's like so much written about that moment because so many people agree that that is like when you're when you're basically when you're a goner (laughs) after that it's like and what age is it like three Um, so there's lacanian theory that says like the mirror theory that says like there's this moment of power when a young when a baby or toddler recognizes it themselves in the mirror and starts to understand itself as a separate entity from the from its mother um, and starts to experiment with the fact that it can cry, you know, like mm-hmm. the different things that it does, there's like a self-awareness um, that you are both apart from the world, but can it interact with it. That was so nerdy. I'm sorry. No, um, I love that. And I remember, I, yeah. I remember my kids when they would recognize themselves in the mirror and they're not very old. They're a few months old, right? Yeah, I mean, they're, you know, young. or even 
weeks or weeks old, but it is, it's early, right? So yeah, so we, we, we're then after that, we're all picking up signs that we get from our families and our culture and, and, and everything. That's yeah. And so what does that do to the concept of free, free choice? Mm -hmm. And that's something that Shay is just grappling with um, because she has done things that she feels enormous guilt for and that right. she is being told she shouldn't. Right. Um, and she also has choices that she knows are hurtling toward her um, at high speed. Right. And she's trying to figure out what to do. Right. Um, and uh, not to spoil, you know, anything that you learn later in the book, but um, so much of, of what you get at the end of the book is you're left with the question of like, what, what were Shay's choices? Right. Really? Right. And, you know, like, is she really so guilty? Right. <laughs> you know, that's like the, um... I mean, I feel like it's a very, it's really, it's a very powerful thing. I think everything that happened to her leads to, um, yeah, leads to, to, you know, where the story takes us. And it makes, you know, I think that's, that is right. It is, I mean, you, you know, you know, as a person who's been in that situation, that there, that is a, a form of, you know, mental abuse that, that is imprinted on her uh, forever. You know, there's no, there's no, not a lot of escape from that. Um, I, so, so this, the, Shay is the main character, but there are two other women, sort of three women that went to school together. Um, and I thought it was interesting. So I, you know, when I was thinking about these three women, um, uh, there's um, Laurel and Shay and Cleo. Am I? Clementine, yeah. Clementine, okay. <laughs> right, Clem, sorry, yes. And um, I thought it was interesting that, you know, so two, for two of those women, um, their father figures were not present, yeah. right? And, and for one, the, they had a father figure, although they never, they didn't really see eye to eye with their parents for, you know, whatever reasons. And I wondered, it was interesting to me, and I wondered if it was a conscious choice, that the one character who sort of resisted, although they all, of course, complied with Into the Cold, and they were all, you know, complicit in in whatever ways they're complicit because of course they were they were sort of drawn there and trapped but mm -hmm. the one that had the father figure sort of fared in many ways she was able to sort of hold on to her uh independence a little more anyway yeah, yeah. and i wonder if that's you know do we think that having a father figure having you know maybe you know even a decent father figure or an okay father figure really does serve us as women in a way that having no father figure doesn't. Yeah, that's such an interesting and provocative question because I didn't even put those pieces together until oh. you said that. Uh, no, but I think that there's something there. And I very consciously, you know, Shay and Laurel both um, have absent fathers in different ways, right? Yeah. Like Laurel's father is a man she loved very, very much and lost. Right. And Shays is a man who, you know, walked away from her. Um, and, but yet Clem has this father figure who isn't great right. by any means, and she doesn't feel particularly close to. But I think that there is really something to be said about the fact that um, Clem comes from a large family, a family, she, she and a little bit of her own personality um, mixing in there too, of just like coming from this large family and being the oddball out. Um, I think it has, it, having learned to like think independently and autonomously, 
um, I think is what sets her up the most to be resistant to Dawn. Um, but it's, I'm also realizing now that I don't think I've written a single book with a, a strong father figure, yeah. despite the fact that I have one. Right. Um, right. So I think I need to like talk to my therapist about that. Um, <laughs> well, see no, what that I means. Think, yeah, yeah, I think, we're, I think it's so that even that, even that comment probably speaks to the fact that we are, we, we do, you know, the strong, a strong male figure and obviously the better, the more sort of, you know, accepting and, and he is of his women, his female children and what they want and need. Um, it's important, you know, the, and I don't think, I mean, obviously there's a lot of incredible single moms doing the job and a lot of single dads, but I think there's something to having that a role mo- a male role model who shows us that, you know, this is how you love a woman and this is how you, yeah. um, you know, you, you encourage your daughter, children, your daughters to be who they want to be and not, you know, not yeah. back down. So I thought that was, I just, yeah, that, that occurred to me and I, all three characters are, re- you know, really interesting. And I don't, I think, you know, you're, I've heard you talk about your father and he sounds amazing. How does your father feel about these books? <laughs> he has not read The Last Housewife um, yet. Um, yeah. yeah, he, so far he's a great supporter of my work okay. and has, okay. has not commented on, <laughs> you know, the either missing or, or, or bad dads in all of these books. Um, but I think like so much of the, so much of the books that I write are infused with kill your father energy. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean, like in the academic anti-patriarchal sense mm-hmm. of like kill your father, Sure. like yeah. you're, the father is the patriarchy. The father is the thing that you're the system you're born into who takes mm-hmm. care of you in a very paternalistic way. Um, and so maybe that's why there are so many absent or twisted fathers because they're books about getting rid of them. Um, and I, it's kind of interesting to me as you were describing the role of, of a good father, which I totally agree with, that I had Jamie fill that space as a man. Yeah. yeah. Um, interesting, more fodder for my therapist. I know for next, <laughs> for the next, for the next books, yeah. but um, no, I do, you know, I, I mean, and I think in the same way that we, what we're rec- what you recognize in, in your books, and, and my mom would always comment that, that all the mothers of my characters are always dead. And I, I think <laughs> it's what we realize is that there's something really important about that foundation, right? Yeah, about absolutely. having those, and that that can, you know, and oftentimes when we're, we're already sort of, there's already difficulties just with being a young person, and especially, you know, we're marginalized by, you know, our community or you know mm-hmm. wealth or all the other reasons people are marginalized then then family parents can make a you know a huger a more massive impact so I think yeah. it's it's worth I don't think um I'm sure your dad feels very safe in his in his in his in his love um, I've recently given him permission to read the last housewife so I'll let you know what he thinks about I'll be book. curious well and <laughs> I, I mean he knows you as his daughter and you are somebody yeah. who thinks you know, and, and talks very openly about these issues. So he's probably, yeah. he, it's probably not going to come as too much of a shock for him. Yeah. Um, and you're probably part of the big, are you part of the big family? Is that right? I am. Yeah. I'm the oldest of four kids. And then my parents are still together. So we've been a little unit of six for, you know, all these years and grew up with a, my dad being in the military. Yes. So we hopped around every two wow. years. 
Yeah. Um, so are you close? Are you close in age? You, we're you four and four years. So we okay. like literally couldn't be closer. And we've just been like a little unit my whole four life. in four years. Tell God your mother, I'm mother. very impressed. That yeah. is, ooh, that is. So I'm the oldest of four also, but my baby and my parents were married for 35 years. My dad's gone, but um, they had, my baby brother is 17 years younger than I am. So they wow. sort of did it. And my mom had, you know, some struggles with pregnancy, but they're four, you know, four years and then nine years. And then the, the two boys are four years apart. So my sister's, wow. so it's kind of a sort of a different, we're also our own little unit, but a, a very different one. So it's, Oh, I um, love that. But I, I think there's something about being the oldest. We can talk about that another time. But <laughs> oh my gosh, uh, yes. Every basically, I fit every stereotype of of being the oldest. Me uh, too. The oldest daughter, especially. Yes. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. So I understand. Well, we won't talk about all the need yeah. for control and stuff. We can talk about that later. Yeah. <laughs> I used a lot of it into Shay, to be honest. And that's um, and I actually what a great way, right, to sort of channel these things that we need to work out for ourselves. I do love the yeah. process of writing because I think you get to explore all the versions of yourself, right? Um, oh my gosh, yes. All the ways and all the sort of, you know, roads that we, we go down just in our minds, we can now go down in, in, in words, which is really, I think it's very powerful. It's very, I think it's very cathartic. I, I think everybody should probably write somewhat, you know, whether or not they want to share. Um, it's great. Speaking of that, so Shay tells Jamie that she feels like there's no such thing as an objective observer mm -hmm. and that that's why stories are so powerful. So she says, if you're listening, you're part of it. And I love that. that I love that because I think that's, that is so true. It's why we say, you know, a, a man lives one life, a reader lives a thousand lives. Um, is that part of the reason you think you write? Oh, yeah, that's such a great, that's such a great question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> trying to make readers like complicit. No, trying to trying to like have a conversation with with the people on the other side um, who are reading. Absolutely. Um, and to like to kind of harken back to what you were also just saying so beautifully put about like the joy of the cathartic joys of writing. Like I, I have a joke that I self-soothe through my books and like, I'm just like working through, like you said, all of these different pieces of myself book by book. And it's like this conversation I'm having both with myself and with readers. Like here's, here's a thing that I've experienced and here is it magnified and, right. and made into a narrative. Um, what do I think about this? What do you think about this? Is this in you too? And you can't, be a reader and have an emotional response to a, a narrative without being part of it. I think that, you know, you are then welded together in some way. Um, and so that that is both a wonderful thing, but it's also a power that can be wielded um, to kind of negative effect and something that I was really cautious of when writing The Last Housewife because it's such a dark book. And I understood that my readers would be in it with my characters. Mm -hmm. And so I really thought long and hard about what to put on the page and right. where to be visceral and, and allow brutality versus when to pull back. Yeah. And that was something that my editor and I um, had a lot of conversations about. And so the final copy of Housewife, which is more or less um, what's what. The, the arc version as well, but looks very different from the first few drafts. Interesting. When was I just went full tilt um, in sure. those first few drafts? Yeah. Um, 
But I also think that there's a lot of power in the a visceral experience when reading. Right. And so your reader is there, your reader is part of it. There's no, there's no objective observer. Um, knowing that when you as a writer put certain brutal scenes on the page, you understand it's going to have a pretty big impact on your, your reader. And I think that that's important yeah. because every day we're so we have to numb ourselves right mm -hmm. to to brutality injustice yeah rage all of these things watching the news like we have to numb ourselves as, as a survival tactic just to get through our day to day but we also need to feel and encounter the rage and and the the fear um and the dark stuff and i feel like books are a really great place to do that because the reader is in control. You can put the book down if you right. need to and not return to it if that's if that's your choice. But like, um, this is a space for that, I think, a safe space for that. So, you know, that was kind of, kind of in my head yeah. as I was writing. Um, but I think, again, not to spoil the housewife, the last housewife, the end, but I, that statement of, about no one's an objective observer, mm -hmm just comes back to haunt you yeah. in the end of the book. Um, yeah. So that was me trying to do a little bit of foreshadowing. Yeah, no, and it's, I mean, I think it's real, I think it's really, um, it's really successful. And I think it is true that a book, unlike sort of a, a screen, you know, where it's sort of shoved down your throat, a book allows us to sort of take in as much as we can take in. And also it makes us interpret in our own brains what we're reading. We have to make the picture ourselves. And I think that makes it that much more powerful too, right? Yes. We're sort of, what we're really numb to, right? Is just violence everywhere. It's on the screens, it's on our video games, it's, you know, and so, to, but when it's in a book and you are creating it, right? Cause the reader is creating the story. Yeah, You're just exactly. giving the words to create it. So the reader is picturing this in, in their own way. And I don't feel like, I mean, one of the things this book does not do, it's not a, you know, there's not a, there's not depiction of, you know, a massive amounts of, of violence, even though of course it's a, it's a sex cult. So, that, you know, yeah. there's some understanding that, that, that happens, but no, you don't, I don't feel like you, um, you needed to, you didn't need to, and you do a very good job, I think of, of not necessarily shoving that, um, so far to the reader that you would that readers feel like they can't get through it because I think it's Im you. it's important that we get through it right but that's the whole idea is that this is how we learn um, what goes on in the world is by by being able to see these things and taking the time to digest them which a book also gives us and sometimes yeah. a twenty second news does not right I I have to admit that like there was a part of me writing this book that was like if if I have to feel it like like a sledgehammer, yeah. you know, then you're going to feel it like a sledgehammer. And right. it's, it's going to feel like being a woman in the world feels like being like an honest, a thing you can't escape from. And like, I want to recreate that. Then you're going to have to feel that like a little bit of that um, while writing the book. But then on the other end in the editing process, I would lay awake at night, sweating, worried, and like running through every scene making sure nothing was gratuitous. And if no. there was anything that was in any way 
rehashing something that the reader already knew that I would take it out or pull it back so that every scene of violence was um, earned. I, yeah. and I hope that that. I, I, I feel that way. I, you know, I feel that way a hundred percent. I mean, I think, I think the, the lessons about sort of the, the struggles of being a woman are really, you know, and I hope that the men who read this book will also engage with that because I think you're, this is not a man hating book at all. No. Right. This no. is a, this is a, I'm a, you know, this is Shay is a woman and we are seeing it from her perspective, but we are also very much living from Jamie's perspective yeah. and, and about a man who loves a woman and understanding how that is for him. And I think his emotion, you know, although we're not in his head necessarily, but we see his emotion very clearly in, you know, what goes on in those, in those conversations between the two of them. Um, one of the things that this book made me think about um, that I, you know, that I of course always struggle with is the idea that, you know, women are so hard on one another. There's this, um, you know, there's the, the joke that says that it, <laughs> women could run the world if we could just get along. And I sort of wonder if it's these things that sort of fester early in our, in our, you know, youth where we're just, where we're told sort of what's important and what our value is. And if we're told that our value is beauty and you know, procreation and, you know, in the kitchen or what, you know, those sort of more traditional, you know, roles versus if we're told that, you know, our, our power can be anywhere and we can be in the boardroom and we can be in the, in the surgical suite. Um, and is that what, like, you know, there's of course the famous sort of Oprah scene with the women who, the women who um, stay, are stay-at-home moms versus the women who are working moms and just the vitriol that goes back and forth between, um, these women and I, these women, and I wonder if it's because the it sort of the inbred or taught learned mm -hmm. insecurity in us is so fierce that we have to cling so tightly to whatever role we take. Right? We can't. Yeah. There can be no room for sort of another way. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And like, I mean, what better way to for a patriarchy to remain in power than to set women you know, against one another and to foster so much insecurity. Mm -hmm. Because what's really at the heart of all of this, I think, is that as women, we are taught, and even, even if you are, you know, a, a queer woman or just everyone, men are taught this, this too. So it has nothing to do with like sexuality or gender, but we're all taught that our value revolves around what value we bring to men for, you know, for men to other men, uh, for, for women um, to men. So like, what, what a value, how, how much do you appeal, whether it's through um, your service to them, you know, in the kitchen or, or elsewhere through your beauty, through whatever it is, like how much do you appeal? And that is the measure of your power. And I think it's that that like is a thing that causes the women, certainly of, of the last housewife, to um, you know fracture and and be at odds with one another. But also just in life, I think that is the um, and it's so it's so interesting to me too. And this is something that I grapple with. And so like in the housewife, what I'm doing is just putting all of my own um, struggles and like suspicions about my own brain on the page but you know it's like no matter how much I consider myself a feminist 
how committed I am to supporting other women, there are still those knee-jerk moments that you have when you encounter a powerful woman who has something you don't and your brain flickers immediately to, how dare she, I want it. How can I have it? Like (laughs) shove her aside in a way that I don't know that it happens the same with men because there's like this thing that my brain automatically thinks that I can't have it. And they're like, it, it goes, it tries to go in another direction, but man, that flicker Mm -hmm. that has to be taped down like that. I'm, I'm so suspicious and, and, and angry that that like, that is a thing that has been conditioned in me. Yeah. Um, But it's a thing that like, if you don't work, I'm convinced maybe we all experience some degree of it. And so that brings me a little bit. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Um, And I think men too. I mean, I think men feel it too. It's just that it feels like with men, with women, we sort of like, there's a, um, there's a scarcity problem, right? There's only these many spots up here for women. Yes. So if she has it, I don't have it. But with men, I think it feels like, you know, okay, there's plenty of room up here. You know, you can be here. I can be here. We can all be here. It's sort of, you know, the good old boys club. But with women, I think we see um, it feels scarcer. And so we, we sort of an either or, I mean, that's That's my perception. No, that's so perfectly put. And, and that like the cult in the last housewife dramatize like literalizes that it really Um, does right and yeah that is absolutely what it is I think that is like for readers who are listeners who are going to read the book like the the thing to keep in mind between Laurel and Shay um right (laughs) which is all I'll say yeah and there's you know and I I mean so there's also there's a you know there's 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 a bunch of other characters, and I, I probably should wrap this up, but I want to talk about Nicole for a second. Yeah. Because she's this sort of, you know, she's this woman who's in the sex cult who sort of embraces the sex cult. And she talks about um, that, you know, basically her whole life has been sort of um, what she calls a passing of ownership, right? Like a title yeah. change. She's She had an alcoholic abusive father and then her parents turned to religion, but, you know, God wanted her to be a certain way. And, and then mm-hmm. she fell in love. And then he wanted her to be a certain way. And so, and then what was more painful than, than, you know, falling out of love? Well, that was as excruciating as her sort of upbringing. And so she basically says, you know, it's the same story everywhere you turn. Anyone who tells you different is blind or trying to sell you something. You know, at least with this situation, she says it's out in the open. At least here I'm walking in with clear eyes. Loving your pains, the only control you get. And the way, you know, she's a minor character, um, but she's so beautifully painted and so vivid. And um, she, you know, she does this incredible job of, of, of helping us understand another way of helping us understand, you know, why women turn to these organizations. Yeah. Or uh, thank you so much for saying that. First of all, I love Nicole. Yes. And I didn't know how much I would love her when I first Mm -hmm. started writing this book and then just like fell in love with writing her. She's the, she's like the nihilist, right? Mm -hmm. She's the, the, the pragmatist Um, here, here, Shay and Laurel and Clem to some extent are all going around trying to like untangle why and, you know, Shay, especially like, oh, but is, can there be other ways? And, and, you know, why do I want this? And why are some parts of this attractive to me? And Nicole's just like, look, this is the way the world works, honey. Mm -hmm. You think you alone are going to like solve 
some this intractable thing that has existed for as long as as humans have existed right. no like this is bare life like yeah. what you are looking at is life stripped down to the truth um, yeah. of how it works and so you either are going to get on board and get the most you can out of it right or you know you're going to have some like non non-vip version of, right. of patriarchy right. i guess right use her, her parlance um, exactly so i loved writing her for because i think that that is very much an attitude that it exists in the world and mm -hmm. there's a lot of like it's compelling there's certain parts of it that are compelling and I think it's like why some women lean in to being wholly financially supported by right. their husbands, for example. Right. Why you have trophy wife culture, why you have, you know, all of the this culture of of like, you know, I'm just why not be supported? Why right. not? Like, you know, let right. and then you have you have to say things like well, if it goes away, what's going to happen to right. you? Or, right. you know, if there's any change in like your, in your husband's affections or your material conditions, like your, your whole situation changes and, and like, ah, have some power outside of it. But, but it's, it's interesting because, you know, the other, the flip side of that also is that, you know, so the, the, the sort of obvious suggestion then for all women would be, be financially independent. Yep. But then if you enter children into the equation, it's almost impossible. It's unsustainable to have two working parents and raised kids. So naturally we have this sort of one person becomes the breadwinner and one person becomes the caregiver. And, you know, in our society, you know, women are paid less, um, you know, way larger percentages of time. And then they step out of the workforce, even just to get the kids into kindergarten and then they've lost traction. So it's, it's sort of set up right for us for, you know, for failure. Yeah, the condition, the system is set up to disempower women. Yeah. And like, I know that we are seeing that on mass scale in, during the pandemic too, just yes. to, as like a perfect example of exactly yep. what you're saying, that yep. the, the you see all the cracks in this system that we've set up right. when that pressure is applied. And of course, we've seen so many women leave the workforce because someone needs to to do child care school and the children yeah the expectation is right. not only just the expectation but to your point if you're even if you're being completely like pragmatic about it so men are are like typically paid more so yeah. if someone's going to step out of their role right it's a financial and, it becomes a very yeah. easy financial decision right and, and then then masks all the mm -hmm. things that aren't easy like that aren't fair at all about that yeah right of course and then put on top of that you know the the new you know overturning roe v wade and we just have another way that we are um disempowering women so i mean well, yeah boot, that, boot. that was a when that when that happened i know um i like after being in a, like a walking around in a fugue state, even knowing it was coming because of yeah. the leak did yeah. nothing to like stop the, the gut punch. But after walking around a fugue state, I was like, well, um, the Potter society has entered the Supreme court of the United States, which of course, like was true before. Yeah. We knew that. Ruling, right. Yeah. We knew that, mm -hmm. but still. Yeah. Um, isn't I mean I have a 22 year old daughter and 
she was in Prague at the time and I just got a very long sobbing phone call and we knew it was coming, but you know, what do you tell, what do I tell her? Like what, you know, (laughs) actually my advice was stay in Prague. I think that's probably a really lovely place. And, you know, anyway, it's, and we could go, we could talk for hours about that, but okay. The last thing I want to ask is two more, I have two more questions and I got it. I'm going to let you go. The first one is that, and we sort of talked about this, but I want to pay, I want to make note of it because I thought it was so interesting. And one of the things you mentioned at the back of your book, there's a, there's some questions, which I love, you know, when they, that you have, questions um for the for the author and um you said you know you write about the things that fear that you're afraid of which I think is very relevant I think that is something that most of us do people are oftentimes like is it feel empowering to write about these scary things and I'm like well I don't know I don't know that it does it's just a way of sort of excavating all that fear and you said one of the things you said is that maybe you're afraid of yourself um which I think is also a really honest you know, confession. Do you do you want to add anything to yeah. that since I've outed you? Yeah, I'm just putting it all out there, I guess. <laughs> yeah. um, and just like, ah, uh, yeah. I um, <laughs> I was thinking a lot about why I write the kind of books that I write across in my dreams and um, mm-hmm. Housewife and this new book, this new thriller I'm work- writing right now. Um, and I realized that the scary, like the thing that attracts me and, the, and the, the scariest part of these books to me um, are the way that their main character, the main characters like cannot trust themselves, have parts of their brains that are unknowable to their strangers to themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a thing that I think all people experience, at least to some degree. Yes. Um, and f- for those of us who experience to it to like increasing degrees, it is so terrifying to plumb the depths of your own brain sometimes. Right. Um, and that, I th- so I think that if there's anything that like unites all of my books, it's that um character that it's that like the scariest thing is your own mind like yeah like Shay says there will be no greater antagonist than your own mind yeah um, it feels so true I think that's and I think that's it's worth exploring and it's worth putting out there that that is true for everybody um that there are parts of uh, you know of our of ourselves we 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 only probe in very quick moments in very dark rooms you know because yep. Um, there's there that's there so um, it was lovely and I have chatted you way way long here but um, the, uh, so the last thing I want to ask because you already just alluded to it is what is next for Ashley Winsett because and when can I get my hands on it <laughs> yes, um, as soon as you want it what well, are you as soon as I'm on? done I'm yeah exactly. done writing it so right now I'm writing my next thr- thriller that will be out in 2023 um, it's called Midnight is the Darkest Hour, and it is a serial killer uh, story set in a fictional town in Louisiana, and it stars um, a woman that I'm really loving writing right now. She's a preacher's daughter, and so we're going to, I'm plumbing really, really deep on ideas of like what is good and right, and she's, she's my youngest character I've ever written. So I'm thinking a lot about girlhood and how mm-hmm. that's constructed, um, especially by men who are telling you what it means to be right. a good girl. And a preacher um, of, all, of all men, all, right? Yes, mm-hmm. on all, of all men. So religion is big in this yeah. book. Yeah. 
That's, I mean, these are these are important topics. It's so fascinating. Anyway, I, I actually honestly could talk to you for a weekend. Same. So, <laughs> but I thank you. I, I can't thank you enough for joining us. You don't, I mean, if you haven't read In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife is fabulous. And this, uh, The Last Housewife is a, you know, a lot of people have a sophomore slump, but, but we did not see you have a sophomore <laughs> slump. So this was fabulous. Like I said, I, I made um, tons of notes. I loved it. Thank you so much for joining me today, Ashley. Thank you so much. This has been an absolute joy. I could talk to you forever. (laughs) I I know, me too. And for those of you joining us, um, thank you for joining Killer Women. And we hope to see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.